0: Open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, and I'm going to read from verse 1, the living, breathing words of God Himself, and then we're going to invite Him to help us this morning. So, Luke chapter 9, verse 1. And He called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see them. On their return the apostles told him all that they had done And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away and the twelve came and said to him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we go to buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you so so much this morning that we get to gather before your word and to listen to you. And so, Lord, as your people, we come before your throne and we ask you, King of kings, feed us. Feed us from your word. Open our eyes and unveil our hearts that we might behold wondrous things from your word. And we pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Well, I want us to cast our minds back or to join with me as I cast my mind back to the year 2006 when I was in my third year of physiotherapy and on my latest practical placement at Shoalhaven Hospital in Nowra on the New South Wales South Coast. Now, for those unfamiliar with practical placements, these can be quite high pressure situations, particularly when studying physiotherapy, as at the University of Sydney, they are a pass or fail situation, there's no grades in between. If you fail, it means you have to repeat the entire year all over again. Now, I had a supervising physiotherapist who was looking after me during my time at Shellhaven Hospital, and he had one rule. And that one rule was that any new skill must be signed off by him before being practiced independently at the hospital. Fair enough, you would say. Well, I was working in a variety of uh, different areas at the hospital, uh, including caring for a gentleman who had recently suffered a stroke. And because of the paralysis he had experienced from his stroke, uh, he was regularly, routinely being hoisted, being lifted by a sling, uh, using a sling lifting machine, a hoist, uh, moving him from his bed to his chair where he would sit throughout the day. Now, I'd watched this being done many, many times during my practical placement. So I assumed it doesn't look that hard, shouldn't be that difficult. So I grabbed a, a nursing aide to help me and I started hoisting him uh, from the bed into his chair. And the room had a couple of nursing aides and helpers in it myself. Uh, and this man suspended in midair went in walks my supervisor. And he proceeds to say... What do you think you're doing? Didn't I say you needed permission before you try anything new? Give me one good reason why I shouldn't fail you right here and right now. Now, what's the point of this story? My point is that you can learn a lot about being a physiotherapist or any job by reading lots of books. But the best place to learn is on the job. It's in real life. You know, I learned a valuable lesson that day, a lesson to always pay careful attention to what your supervisor says. But just like my practical placement taught me a valuable lesson, Jesus today is out to teach his disciples by way of practical placement as well. He is sending them for the first time out on his behalf. Uh, If you're taking notes this morning, uh, the simple title I have for this message today is All We Need. Uh, I've got two points for us this morning and spend most of the time on the first point. They're really two lessons. I'm going to call them lessons and uh, and, uh, they're going to be quite simple and straightforward from the text. But one real hope for us this morning as we get stuck into God's word, which I believe this passage is communicating to us or God wants to speak to us. And that is that whatever God calls us and whatever life brings, Jesus is all we need. Well, let's dive into our first lesson this morning from our passage, and that is lesson number one, all we need for mission. Jesus is all we need for mission. Now, if you're new to our series and you've not been tracking with what's been happening, just by way of context, we've been studying uh, the Gospel of Luke, which is a biography of Jesus's life written by one of his earliest disciples, a man named Luke. In fact, a doctor called Luke. And Luke collected eyewitness accounts and he pasted them all together, put them all together, that this man Theophilus, who was sponsoring his writing, might have certainty about the things that happened in Jesus' life, that we might know about Jesus. And the key verse in the previous chapter, chapter 8, is verse 25, where the disciples ask, Who then is this, that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? Who is this Jesus, is the question the disciples are asking. And time and time again, Luke wants you to see who Jesus is, that he has power over nature, that he has power over the spiritual world, that he has power over sickness and death, that he is the God man, Jesus Christ. And in our passage today, Jesus is out to give his disciples their very first practical training. And just like an apprentice learns most by practicing his trade, Jesus is going to give his disciples their very first work placement. This is on-the-job training. When you read with me verse 1 of our passage? And he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. See, Jesus, having displayed so much of his power and authority, knows his disciples now need some practical training. And so he calls them together. Now, many of his disciples, for instance, uh, Peter, we know had... A wife and children. And so it's likely that they often spent time apart to be with them. But Jesus, for this moment, calls them all back together and he gives them power and authority. These are kind of like two train tracks that they both desperately need. You see, a power without authority is exploitation like a bag snatcher who has the power to steal a grandma's bag or like an abusive husband who has the power to abuse his wife but not the authority to do so. But alternatively, authority without power is useless, like a soldier with no backup or like a lone riot policeman facing off against a huge crowd that is rioting. Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you both the ability and the right to exercise control over sickness and evil spirits. And this is really important because this power, this authority is needed to establish the apostles' credibility as Jesus' representatives. But even more than this authority, Jesus gave his disciples also a very clear mission. When you read with me verse 2, And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Two very clear missions. To proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Let's examine each of those individually. Firstly, to proclaim the kingdom of God. That word proclaim simply means to speak of publicly. To speak publicly about the kingdom of God. According to Jesus, this was the most important part of his ministry. Not the miracles, but proclaiming the kingdom of God. You know, you might think that Jesus came primarily as a miracle worker or as a teacher, but he actually saw himself as a preacher. Uh, In chapter 4, verse 43, Jesus says, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. In addition, in chapter 8, Jesus performed many miracles and Luke writes that he was traveling around proclaiming the kingdom of God. In addition, in our passage later on in verse 11, this crowd gathers and he speaks to them, Luke says, concerning the kingdom of God. Now, what has been the feature of Jesus' own ministry that is telling people about the kingdom of God, he is now tasking to his disciples. But here's the problem. His disciples still didn't quite understand what Jesus meant by the kingdom of God. Uh, They're still thinking largely in geopolitical terms. They're thinking about a nation, an army and a place like Jerusalem. We know this because Jesus will correct them later on in chapter 19. But here's what they do know. They know he's the promised Messiah. They know he has a wisdom that has never been seen before. They know that he's filled with the Holy Spirit and a power unparalleled. They know he's been healing the sick and he's been healing the blind. He's been healing the deaf. He's been healing the leprous and he's been turning water into wine and he's been raising the dead. And so their message is, in Jesus, God's kingdom has arrived. And so Jesus sends them out with what little they know to proclaim, to speak publicly about the kingdom of God and so fulfilling Jesus's words to them when he first called them in Luke chapter 5 to become fishers of men. But not just to proclaim the kingdom of God. The second thing Jesus sends them out to do is to heal the sick. You see, just, just as Jesus had given them authority over all demons and to cure diseases, he sends them to heal to care for not only the spiritual condition of people, but also the physical condition as well. He sends them to perform acts of mercy. Now, it's worth saying at this point that the power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases that Jesus gives his 12 disciples is different to that given to us. This had a special role in his ministry. And that role was to demonstrate that the Christ has come. Now, that is not to say that miraculous healing does not occur today. It's just that we shouldn't expect it to be the norm. You know, when the Lord Jesus went out to heal people and his disciples went out to heal people, they healed nearly every single person they encountered. And healing still does happen today. You know, I remember some years ago in our church, uh, there was a, a woman in our church who was part of our church who for 11 years had been trying to have children to no avail. And I remember the particular Sunday morning where she came forward to be prayed for myself and another woman in the church prayed for her. And God did something really special in that moment. We all just started crying as we were praying for her and asking the Lord to bring healing to her. And three months later, she fell pregnant and has since had two children, two beautiful, healthy children. A miraculous healing of this woman. But the point is that this is actually rare. The main evidence God uses to demonstrate now that Christ is here in our midst is actually the testimony of the church. Just as Jesus himself says in John chapter 13, verse 35, this is how they'll know you're my disciples, by the love that you have for one another. And therefore, miraculous healing in our day is much more common in a context where there is no testimony of the local church, and that is in pioneering missions. Now, all these things considered, There is still a general principle to be drawn from this passage about the manner in which the Lord Jesus sends his disciples. He sends them proclaiming the kingdom of God and healing the sick. Now, one of these aspects is primary and the other is secondary. One is most important and one is not quite as important. You see, sharing publicly the message of Jesus is the most important, and yet healing the sick is absolutely vital as well. Now, by healing the sick, I'm not referring mainly to miraculous healing, but caring for the sick, acts of mercy, a heart and a disposition of care towards those who are in need. And the reason is the message of the Bible. You see, every person... According to the Bible, on the face of this earth, whether old or young, whether disabled or athletic, whether rich or poor, whether successful or failed, whether healthy or ill, is made in the image of God and therefore precious. Every person. When God created the world, he imprinted something of his own nature in all people, which sets them apart from everything else in this world. And God did this. He did this as the source of all that is good, of the source of the greatest wisdom, as the one who is most powerful and most filled with goodness. And he created mankind in order that they might enjoy his goodness, because he's a father who longs to have relationship with the things he creates. But our forefathers believed they could chart their own path without God and they rejected and chose self-rule and every person ever born, ever since, has followed in their footsteps. But here's our one great problem. The definition of injustice is when people do not receive what they deserve. If you're a person made in the image of God, you are worthy of respect and honour and kindness. And so when someone slanders you, Or abuses you, this is injustice. Therefore, the worse I treat you relative to what you deserve, the more unjust it is. You know, in the papers and on the news recently, it's been all about the murder of Sarah Everett as her uh, murderer, who was actually a policeman, uh, was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole in the UK. And what made it so heinous, this crime, was not just. The things that he did to her. But that he exploited his position to do so as a policeman. It was an incredible act of injustice. Now consider that God is of infinite value compared with us. He is of infinite goodness. He is of infinite majesty. He is of infinite wisdom, infinite knowledge and infinite kindness. Therefore, The greatest acts of injustice, the greatest crimes worthy of the greatest punishment are not ultimately against people, but against God himself. To dishonor God, to reject his authority as the one who is infinitely good is a crime worthy of eternal punishment. Anything less would be an injustice. Anything less would belittle his worth and it would slander his name. And so the Lord Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, that he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his, ages, and, and his angels. And again in verse 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And this is why Jesus came, to bear upon himself the punishment we rightly deserve. Jesus will go on to say in this chapter in verse 51 of chapter 9 of our passage that he set his face towards Jerusalem, which meant he was determined to go to die the sacrifice once and for all. That anyone who turns from their old self-focused way and puts their trust in him and makes Jesus the focus of their life will be saved. And this is his kingdom. This is the kingdom of God. It's not a physical place where, where God rules amongst all people over whom have turned to Jesus. It's a place where God rules in the hearts of people all across the globe who have made Jesus their Lord and King. But here's the truth. The vast majority of people in our community think that they will be okay with God because they are good people. And therefore face eternal suffering facing the wrath of God without Christ. John Piper puts it this way. Christians care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. You know, as Christians, we're called to care about all forms of suffering. But the greatest suffering we are to care about is eternal suffering. See, people must hear about the great love of God from them in and through the Lord Jesus. We must proclaim Jesus to everyone. This is absolutely vital. It is impossible to truly love your neighbor, to truly love your family, to truly love your friends and withhold the message of Christ. But that message is not very believable if those who say they follow Christ simply do not care for the needs of those around them. And so right from the very beginning of the church, Christians have had a heart and a care and a concern for the sick because this has not only reflected God's heart, but aided the proclamation of the gospel. And so as a result, the very first hospitals were founded by Christians. You know, John Dixon talking about the very first hospital in uh, the Western world says the following, He says the Christian response to illness wasn't just an emergency measure. In about 390 AD, the first public hospital in Western Europe was founded in Rome by a woman called Fabiola. Fabiola was from one of seven founding families of Rome and was one of the wealthiest people in the city. At some point, we don't quite know when, she became a Christian. She sold everything she had and used the money to care for the poor and needy. When Fabiola opened her hospital, the idea of free public health care was so new, so radical, that no one showed up. They just couldn't believe it was true. And so she went out on the streets, searching for the desperately ill and sometimes carrying them herself back to the hospital. What a beautiful example of a transformed life. You know, in a way that is similar to Jesus' ascending of the 12 disciples, he has also given us the wonderful privilege of being part of his mission to announce his kingdom and to heal the sick as well. Here's a question I want us to consider this morning as a church. Can you see that this is the call of God upon your life? Put another way, is this how you view yourself? Do you view yourself as someone with a special mission from God to to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick? You know, it's so easy to lose sight of the mission that we've been given from God to those around us and to become focused on other things. Like new freedoms and dates, like the 11th of October and the 25th of October and the 1st of December, like holidays and the end of lockdowns. Like the return to school and exams or maybe friendships if you think about going to high school, back to high school and you're thinking, you know what, it's going to be awkward. I don't know how to reconnect with my friends and you just find yourself just being anxious and consumed by that. Maybe it's about investments or home ownership or the kids. It's so easy to lose focus on why God has us here. You know, uh, just this last week, a client of mine with cancer who'd been told he had about one or two years to live, he just suddenly died. And it really took me by surprise. And it just left me in my heart asking the question, was I faithful? Now, our lives are not meant to be about ourselves and our challenges, but the glory of Jesus among the nations, where to go proclaiming and healing as we go. But Jesus' lessons to his disciples gets even better as Jesus sends them out in a really unique way. Why don't you read with me verses 3 through to 6. It says the following. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Jesus says, go on a journey to tell people in Israel about the kingdom. But look how he sends them. No staff, no bag like a backpack, no food, no money, no change of clothes, and no organized accommodation. Nothing. If you turn up, Jesus says, and people reject you, shake off the dust from your feet. This was a tradition of religious Jews at the time who, after traveling in Gentile lands, would... would Not wanting to bring anything polluted or ceremonially unclean back to Israel would would remove the dust from their feet. And so Jesus is saying, treat these Jewish towns like they're Gentile towns if they reject the message of God's kingdom. Now, we know this is a lesson from Jesus and not how he wants his disciples to be sent all the time. How do we know this? Well, because in chapter 22, verse 36, Jesus goes on to instruct them in the opposite. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. So then the question becomes, what is Jesus trying to teach his disciples in this moment? I think James Edwards in his commentary says the following and it's excellent. He says this, everything, in other words, that the 12 foreseeably need and that a responsible master would advise them to take is expressly denied them. Jesus sends them into mission with a calculable deficit, reminding them clearly, perhaps even painfully, that they are prepared for mission, listen to this, only as they depend on him. You see, service of Jesus is characterized by dependence on Jesus. And dependence on Jesus means going where Jesus sends, despite material shortfalls and unanswered questions. That's so good. I almost want to say it one more time. We're prepared for missions only as we depend on him. Put another way, Jesus is all we need for mission. You know, I wonder if many of us, you know, with lockdown fatigue and all this talk of mission this morning is making you feel guilty. Guilty. Homeschooling the kids, you feel exhausted, like the end of a marathon and you can just see it now, you're focused on the finish line. Maybe you're single and you miss seeing everyone and you're just feeling lonely and you feel your faith is so weak and you just feel like, I couldn't. Maybe you're new to the faith, you just started following Jesus and you feel like, I don't know enough, I couldn't answer all their questions. Maybe work has been just so relentless. There's absolutely no boundaries now between work and rest with the working from home situation. And you just feel mentally smashed. Or maybe money is tight and you're trying to save every spare dollar for a deposit. And just the thought of the time cost of hosting makes you feel like it's something you could never do. Or Jesus has just started your practical placement. You're in the classroom. You have no bag. You have no, you, no staff. You have no money. You have no change of clothes. And he wants to teach you that all you need for mission is simply to trust. To take a step of faith. Despite your fears, despite your lack of training, despite your tiredness, ask him for strength. Pray and then bake some cookies and knock on a neighbor's door and ask them how they're going. Pray and then... Ask a friend of yours if they could have a spiritual conversation with you. Pray and then ask a colleague to tell you more about why they decided not to have God in their life. You see, the disciples took a step of faith. They trusted in the promise of Jesus, proclaiming Jesus far and wide and healing the sick. And you know what? It was so successful that the news traveled all the way to Herod. And he nervously begins to wonder, who is this? I mean, is this Elijah back from the dead? And that is... Lesson number one, Jesus is all we need for mission. But not just lesson number one, all we need for mission, but lesson number two, all we need, full stop. You know, the truth is that these disciples are still in training and this lesson has yet to end. And what happens next in our passage had such a huge impact on these disciples that is the only miracle apart from the resurrection recorded. In every single account of Jesus' life. Read with me in verse 10 of our passage it says the following On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them, and spoke to them of the kingdom of God, and cured those who had need of healing. The apostles returned from their travels and they recounted Jesus, the marvelous success they had had. Undoubtedly, many people healed and many demons exercised and being received into numerous homes and the kingdom of God being announced to many receptive ears. And Mark tells us that Jesus and the disciples had been exhausted from a full day of teaching, caring for the sick over many days. And they were trying to escape by boat on the Sea of Galilee to Bethsaida, which was on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, a tiny fishing village, which was actually home to three of the different disciples, Philip and Peter and his brother Andrew as well. And we hear from Mark's gospel that the crowd actually spots them trying to escape across to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And so they kind of pick up their stuff and they run around the lake, all the way around to try and meet them on the other side. They have no chance to escape whatsoever. And Mark says that Jesus, as exhausted as he was, saw them and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so we read on in verse 12 of our passage. It says, Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away into the into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. It's getting late in the day, and the disciples have a reasonable suggestion. Look, it's getting late, Jesus. Uh, this is a huge crowd of 5,000 men, probably double that, if you include women and children as well. And this is really in the middle of nowhere. So let's send them on so they can find lodging and they can find food. Now, on one level, this is... An entirely reasonable suggestion to Jesus, right? And yet listen to Jesus' response. Verse 13 says the following. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, well, we, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we go to buy food from all these, for all these people. Jesus turns their question back to them and he says, you do it. You feed them. And the disciples are completely puzzled about how to do this. John's gospel tells us that the disciples who were from that side begin to try and find some solutions. Uh, Philip does the mass and he says to Jesus, well, this would cost like 10 months wages to buy food for all these people. And the disciples themselves have no food. So Peter's brother, Andrew, according to John's gospel, Starts asking around in the crowd for anyone who has food and can only find this little boy with five barley loaves and two fish, it says in John's gospel. You see, the disciples have absolutely no idea where they're going to find food to provide for all these people. This is a rural backwater. This is the middle of nowhere. But why is this? Why do they have absolutely no idea where to find food? Well, it's because they've still not learned the lesson that Jesus is trying to teach them as he sent them out before, that he is absolutely all they need. You know, in Luke chapter 22, verse 35, uh, Jesus will say to his disciples, "'When I sent you out with no money bag "'or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything?' And they answered him, "'Nothing.'" You know, when Jesus asks you to do something, He always provides everything that you need to do it. Just as the birds of the air and the flowers of the field, they don't need to worry about provision, so too he promises that he will take care of all of our needs. You know, here's the question. What is the obvious thing that these disciples could have done to provide for this crowd that they simply never thought to do? And the answer is, they could have simply asked the Lord Jesus. And yet our Lord, ever compassionate, does not despise his disciples for failing this test. And so we read the following in verse 14. It says this, it says, And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and they all sat down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. Jesus takes these meager rations of this little boy and he just looks up to heaven. He says a prayer of thanks. He breaks these five loaves and the two fish. And miraculously, these meager rations are transformed into a huge volume of food. They are fed to overflowing from this small amount. Verse 17 says they all ate and they were satisfied. This was not a light snack. This was eating to your fill. Now, if you've ever just fed 20 people before in your home, you know that this requires a large amount of food. But this crowd we're talking about is probably 500 times that amount. So much food is is provided that the leftovers amount to 12 baskets full of food at the end. Jesus supplies even more than was required. What is the lesson that Jesus is trying to give his disciples here? It wasn't simply that he was able to provide. If that was the lesson here, he would have provided simply enough for their needs. No, the lesson he wanted his disciples to learn was that he was able to provide abundantly beyond what they needed. Even though they didn't ask for that much, he provided. Friends, can you see this morning that this is true of you as well? You know, it's true that it's unlikely that the food that you have on the table at home has appeared by miraculous means. And yet, it is still a gracious provision from our abundant provider. You know, his provision to this crowd was abundant, but it wasn't luxurious. Barley bread and fish. This was a poor man's meal, and yet it was abundant. You know, if the desire for your heart is for luxuries and opulence, you might be disappointed by his provision. But if your concern is for food, for clothing, for a roof over your head, for strength for the day, for protection in obedience to his will, for satisfaction, for an eternal home in the kingdom, he will provide abundantly for everything you need. You know, we have so much here on the North Shore, we can rarely stop and thank him for his abundant provision. For things like hot water and food and a home and health and clothing. And we can find ourselves disappointed. Disappointed largely because we expect the luxuries of our neighbour. And yet the Lord is simply providing abundantly. Not for luxuries, but for what we need. But there's even greater provision that this lesson points to, one that his disciples only later would see. And that is that the Lord would soon break bread again. In chapter 22, verse 19, it says, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they would eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And you know, the bread broken and multiplied to satisfy this crowd points to what the Lord Jesus would ultimately do upon the cross, that his body would be torn and pierced and that he would pay the penalty for our wrongs so that we could be joined back to God, the loving father who longs to be in relationship with all he has made. And you see, so much of our challenge in the midst of fatigue or when we think about stepping out in faith on mission or when we consider the cost of being faithful to Jesus or when we contemplate taking a risk for Jesus boils down to one question. And that question is, is he really good? Does he have my best interests at heart? Will he really provide for me if I follow? Will I like what he provides for me when he does? Is what he says really the best for me? Or put another way, is he really good? And yet Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Not even the death of our Lord Jesus was too great a cost for God to provide for you. He is truly good and he will provide for all of our needs. Full stop. I want to end our time together by sharing with you a story, a story about a man called John G. Patton, who was born in 1824 in Scotland and was a missionary to Vanuatu. And this account is recounted in John Piper's excellent book, Let the Nations Be Glad. Uh, John Patton went as a missionary with his wife and newborn son to Vanuatu in 1858 at the age of 34 years of age. And he arrived in the northern island of Tampa, uh, Tanna, sorry, where four months later his wife died. Two weeks after that, his son, his newborn son, then also died. And John Patton buried them with his own hands, all alone. And he recounts that but for Jesus, he would have lost his mind and gone mad. And yet he stayed on that island for another four years before he decided to flee because of a plot against him to kill him. And his only friend on the whole island, a man called Noah, instructed him to climb a tree outside the village, and wait for Moon to rise before he would come and help him off the island. And John Patton writes the following about his experience up that tree. He says, Being entirely at the mercy of such doubtful and vacillating friends, I, though perplexed, felt it best to obey. I climbed into the tree and was left there alone in the bush. The hours I spent there live all before me as if it were but of yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of the savages. Yet I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus, alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel again my Saviour's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. If thus thrown back upon your own soul, alone, all alone, in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend that will not fail you then? See John Patton, all alone, hanging in a tree, fearing for his life, and yet experiencing the wonderful comfort of knowing Jesus with him. Friends, with the knowledge that Jesus is truly all we need, give us great courage to walk faithfully to him this week, even to take great risks for the sake of his glorious name. Friends, wherever God calls us, And whatever life brings, Jesus is all we need. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you this morning for answering our prayer to feed us faithfully from your word. Lord, your word never goes out in vain. Lord God, thank you for opening our eyes to see more of Christ this morning. To see more of what he wished for those that would follow him that he wishes us to trust you at all times and in all places, that you are able to abundantly provide for us and satisfy us. Lord, you know that often this is not our experience in that we are slow to trust you and that we question your heart. Lord God, I pray for our our church, this beautiful body of Christ this morning. I ask and I pray that you would help us to repent of this and to trust you, knowing that whatever happens, And wherever you might call us, you will always provide abundantly. Lord, would that lead us then to joyfully follow you on the path of our Lord Jesus for his glory and his honour, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.